This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Follow the money is an adage that serves investigative journalists well. David K. Johnston has made a name for himself by following the government's money, in particular those arcane parts of tax law that, because they are sometimes so dense, don't usually get a lot of scrutiny. Until he retired from the New York Times, his beat had been taxes. In his stories, he exposed loopholes and pointed out inequities in the system. For that, Johnston won a Pulitzer in 2001. His first book on the subject was Perfectly Legal, the covert campaign to rig our tax system to benefit the super-rich and cheat everybody else. It was a bestseller. More recently, he looked further into government subsidies and regulation. The result is his latest book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. David K. Johnston spoke about his book at the Commonwealth Club of California, and it's that speech we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. David K. Johnston is a native of San Francisco. He started out in journalism at the age of 20 at the San Jose Mercury News and worked in Detroit, Philadelphia, and elsewhere before his work at the New York Times. He retired from the New York Times this year. Here, then, is David K. Johnston speaking about free lunch. Most of what you probably know about the tax system Uh, derives from a common national myth we have in this country about our tax system. I've spent the last 13 years ignoring pretty much what politicians say about the tax system and therefore what the news media reports and focusing instead on what the government has actually done. What happens when the laws are passed? One of the differences between me and members of Congress is that when I write about some law, I actually read it. And what I found is not at all what I expected to find. In my previous book, Perfectly Legal, I showed that we have created a tax system that takes from the middle class and the upper middle class to benefit those at the very top of our economy. When that book came out four years ago, a lot of people began asking me a question when I gave talks, and it was, Well, you know, I keep hearing from the president how well the economy's done, and the nightly news talks about this, and I keep hearing uh, from politicians about how wealthy we are. Um, I'm not doing that well. How come? And so I started to look at this question. Now, since 1980, the American economy has done fabulously well. More than half the wealth in the history of the republic was created since 1980. For every dollar that the economy put out per person in 1980, it puts out today in real terms $1.70. That is tremendous economic growth. And yet the vast majority, the bottom 90% of Americans, report the same income on their tax returns now that they reported back in 1980. In fact, the incomes of the bottom 90%, the vast majority, peaked in 1973, 35 years ago. And incomes reported on tax returns fell in 2001 compared to 2000. They fell further in 2002. They were essentially flat. They were up a tiny amount in 2003. They came up some in 2004, but still had not reached the level of 2000 and came up a little bit more and just basically broke even with 2000 in the year 2005. Of that little bit of growth that took place from the low point from 2003 to 2005, half of the increase among those who got an increase, and the only people who got an increase were those who make over $100,000 a year. That's essentially the top tenth of Americans, top 10%. Half of the increase went to the one in 500 Americans who make over a million dollars a year. America is a country where one out of seven households has filed bankruptcy in the last 25 years. We have people so wallowing in debt, you can't avoid on television seeing ads either offering you a loan at extraordinary interest rates. One of the ads I talk about in free lunch is for 99.25% interest. Don't even want to lose that last quarter of a percent of interest. Or people promising to somehow make these debts you have go away. 
When you go to Europe and you talk to people, you find that they don't have all this debt. They don't have the same kinds of worries we have. Nobody goes bankrupt anywhere in the modern world because of health care costs except in the United States of America. So I began looking at, well, if we've gotten so much richer, what happened? And that's what free lunch is about. Now, everything I'm going to tell you about today comes out of official government records. And largely, free lunch is a defense of competitive markets. Well, when you go to many of the big box retail stores today, a Walmart, a Target, a Lowe's, a Cabela's, a Bass Pro, in some cases, a new shopping center, the sales tax that you are required to pay at the cash register never goes to the government. Instead, these big national corporations have made deals at as many places as they can, not every store they have, but many of them, to keep the sales taxes. They use the sales taxes to pay the costs of buying the land and building the store. Now, two things grow out of this. One is it means that your police department and your schools and your local parks and the libraries are not getting the government revenue that they need to provide you with the services that grease the wheels of commerce and make modern life work. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, this system of subsidy is systematically destroying locally owned businesses. I was on a radio show this morning, and a caller mentioned that he grew up on the peninsula. And in the area where he grew up, all along the El Camino Real, it was all locally owned stores. And he said, in his town, they are all gone. I'm sure they're not all gone, but the vast majority are, and they've been replaced by big national chains. Now, if big national chains, by being more efficient and more effective in, ha in handling their resources, can put local stores out of business, that's market capitalism. But it's not market capitalism when the owners of these stores get a subsidy from the government. And some of these subsidies are wildly enormous compared to the possible benefits. One of the stories I tell is about a man named Jim Weeknecht. He lives in a little town of 4,000 people, Hamburg, Pennsylvania. It's in the Poconos. For 20 years, he sold um, fishing tackle, hunting bows, outdoor gear, rifles, and when a customer would balk at buying something about the price, he would go to the register and he would pull out a catalog from Cabela's, the biggest retailer of outdoor goods in America, and he would show them, he'd say, look, this is the exact same hunting bow or fish, fly fishing rod that Cabela's has, but my price is lower. And he made a pretty good living, a good enough living that his wife Julie stayed home and raised their three kids, and to Jim Weeknecht, things, things were fine. And then one day, the town fathers of Hamburg decided that they were going to give Cabela's $32 million to build the world's largest uh, out for, outdoor goods store. Six acres of store. $32 million to this little town is the entire city budget for a decade. It is enough money that the city fathers could have bought every family in town a loaded Honda Accord. Well, they ran them out of business. And the city fathers were told, as city fathers are all across America, if you don't build, give us the money to build this Walmart or this Lowe's or this Home Depot, well, we'll just go to the next town. And they'll get all the benefits of this. And the news media routinely report, oh, there's this new store, and it's going to create 50 jobs, 200 jobs, 400 jobs. But nobody looks at the other side of the equation. Unless there is an enormous increase in incomes in that community or a big population growth, or as Cabela's would argue, people will drive all day just to come to Cabela's store to buy um, a fishing reel and rod, then it has to be destroying jobs elsewhere. All the subsidies do in retail is concentrate the economic benefits in one location. Well, all across America, we're doing things like this. We have entire industries now that derive 100% of their profits, not from the marketplace, but from subsidies. Major league sports, baseball, basketball, football, and ice hockey. According to Forbes magazine, 
at the operating level, their operating profits are about $1.6 billion. Well, Congress has been told that the subsidies for that industry are now exceeding $2 billion a year. In other words, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey would be losing more than a million dollars a day as an industry, but for you, the taxpayer, and your generosity. The taxpayers are giving George Steinbrenner and his family $800 million for a new stadium in New York, a stadium built by taking away in the dead of night with no notice to the public a park from people who live in the poorest congressional district in America. And government at every level, from the Bronx Borough Hall to the mayor's office in Manhattan to Albany to Washington, had to cooperate to help this billion-dollar family take a park away from poor people. The new owners of the Washington Nationals baseball team, they paid $450 million to buy that team. But they're getting subsidies from the city of Washington that total more than a billion dollars. In essence, the taxpayers paid them to buy the team more than a half a billion dollars. They said, here, you can have the team, and we'll give you a half a billion dollars for taking it. Now, the question I think we ought to be asking ourselves is this. None of us likes paying taxes. I certainly don't like paying taxes. We'd all like to pay less in taxes. We can disagree about how much in taxes we think we should pay to support the schools or the police department or the poor or the disabled. But how much are you willing to work every year to give money to George Steinbrenner and Warren Buffett and Donald Trump and all the other billionaires I name in my book? That's the question you should be asking yourself. I'm willing to work this many hours every week to give money to the richest people in America. The Walton family are the richest family in America. They have more money than Warren Buffett and Bill Gates together. That's how rich they are. And yet they are feeding at the public trough everywhere they can. They are getting taxpayer dollars. So how many hours are you willing to give up every week to give money to the Waltons? I'm not willing to give them one minute. This is how much I'll give them. Zero. Now, if they want to compete in the marketplace and they want to sell better products or better services and make their store more attractive than somebody else's, I'm all for them. Let them make all the money they can make. But this is a system I describe in Free Lunch in which government reaches into your pocket, takes money out of it, and gives it to these wealthy people. And in many cases, you aren't even doing business with them and you're being taxed to subsidize them. You're listening to Word for Word from American Public Media and a speech by journalist and author David K. Johnston. If baseball were successful as a business enterprise, you wouldn't have to have it exempt from the laws of economic competition. The reason sports team owners can extract huge subsidies from the taxpayers is that Congress lets them control who can own a team and where it's located. That's why there's no football team in Los Angeles. So long as there's no team there, the owners of the other football teams can say, well, excuse me, city fathers of Buffalo, Charlotte, wherever you are, if you don't give us the subsidy we want, we'll just go to Los Angeles. Indeed, that happened here in California. If you'll recall, Al Davis moved the Oakland Raiders at one point, and then he moved them back, hunting for the subsidy. Now, subsidies are not always bad things. For example, I quote um, uh, one of Ronald Reagan's economic advisors, Martin Feldstein, is pointing out that a subsidy for vaccines that mean that people don't get infectious diseases spread to other people or don't get certain kinds of illnesses, those are probably a good thing. Educating children, that's a subsidy to those children. When I was a child, people paid taxes for me to go to school here in California. I now pay taxes for other people to go to school. That subsidy is a good thing unless you want to live in a society of uneducated morons. But subsidies that do not add to the economy but detract from it are a totally different story. Subsidies to retail cannot add to the economy overall. All they can do is concentrate benefits in one location. Uh, one of the first chapters in my book is about the fabulously successful golf courses in Bandon Dunes, Oregon. 
Zagat says that the two of the three best golf courses in America are located there. Those golf courses were built by a man who's a libertarian, who used his own money. He didn't go looking for a government subsidy for his golf courses. But lo and behold, he gets one. And by his calculation, the subsidy is equal to the entire payroll of his full-time staff, their salaries, their fringe benefits, and all the tips they get from the golfers. By my calculation, it's about twice that much. But in any event, there's no fundamental economic gain from this subsidy. The subsidy works this way. For years, the airport at Coos Bay, Oregon, North Bend, had three corporate jets a year come, year after year after year. It now gets 5,000 corporate jets a year. And after the taxpayers have spent $31 million building facilities to benefit the users of these corporate jets, they're expecting 7,000 a year. And there are plans underway to build a lot more golf courses, so the number may get much bigger than that. Well, under a law that Congress passed in 1985, a law promoted as middle-class tax relief, for those people who have a company car that they use both for business and for private usage. There's a provision. It's actually not a provision in the law. It was attached to the law as an instruction to the IRS. You know, just as President Bush has all those signing statements, Congress has something like that too, instructions on how to interpret the law we passed. It was a provision telling the IRS how to value the personal use of corporate jets by CEOs and other senior executives. Well, that, that is such a lucrative subsidy that a trip that would cost the company $200,000, and by the way, you, dear taxpayer, would pick up $70,000 of that cost at the 35% federal tax rate because it's a tax-deductible cost. The executive would pay about $1,000. He'd pay it in the form of higher taxes, so... You'll lose 70000 as a taxpayer and get back 1000 And then as a shareholder, remember, that's where your money's invested in your retirement plan is with these big companies. You spend $70,000. When you read a little story in the newspaper that this or that executive got a fringe benefit for using the company jet of forty or 50000 that's how Congress computes it. Figure the real cost is on the order of 30 times whatever the number that you read is. And that doesn't include something called positioning flights that I explain in the book can make the figure two or three times as high. Well, what are we doing at Band and Dunes? We are helping the wealthiest people in America pay less money to go golfing. It creates some jobs and benefits Band and Dunes, but it impoverishes the whole country. And Mike Kaiser, the businessman who built Band and Dunes, wasn't seeking a subsidy, didn't go to government and ask for help, but he's aware of the subsidy. When I asked him about it, he said, well, you know, that's up to Congress. If Congress thinks this is too generous, they can change it. Well, all throughout our economy, we have these hidden subsidies. Warren Buffett got a $100 million gift from the taxpayers in New York last year. In 2006, he got a loan of two-thirds of a billion dollars, interest-free, and he only has to pay half of it back in the next quarter century. Imagine that you bought a house here in San Francisco in 1980 at 1980 prices. You never had to pay interest on the loan, and this year you had to pay half of what you agreed to pay in 1980. You think that deal alone would make you wealthy? Here's another way to think about it. You take all the income taxes you had to pay this year, and the government says, tell you what, we're going to give it all back to you, all that money held out of your check, and 28 years from now we want it back. No interest on the money. You think you might be a lot better off? Well, that's what I show in free lunch is going on all over the country. When this money gets paid back, that Mr. Buffett's company got a loan of this size from the government, it'll be worth less than half of what he would have paid. Less than half. Well, that shortfall has to be made up. It can be made up through less government services. It can be made up through higher taxes on you. Or it can be made up through more government borrowing. Now, my book starts with Mr. Reagan. Ronald Reagan changed America in profound ways. And when he was elected in 1980, he raised the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? And Americans said no and put him in office. Well, I'm here asking the question, are you better off than you were in 1980? Mr. Reagan promised us 
less taxes and less government. Well, government as a share of the economy is essentially unchanged since 1980. Hasn't changed one bit. He promised us something called deregulation. If you believe in deregulation after reading my book, I want you to meet my friend the Easter Bunny. There's no such thing as deregulation. There's only new regulation. And what we got in new regulation, and I don't think Mr. Reagan intended this. Ronald Reagan was a big picture guy. Very smart man, but a big picture guy. Uh, What we've gotten instead are rig markets. I show from both experiments done by researchers at libertarian schools like George Mason and other colleges, and then actual documents that in some cases Americans have paid 990 times the price for electricity that it was offered for in the market, 30 times the average price it was offered, and show how we have created rigged markets. And here's how much markets in one area of our economy, electricity, and there are three chapters in my book about electricity, are rigged. You remember back in 1965, what made Ralph Nader famous? General Motors investigated him and tried to smear him. They've been arch enemies for years. Well, last December, Ralph Nader and GM and a whole bunch of other big companies joined in going to the federal government and saying the markets in electricity aren't really markets. They're faux markets. They artificially drive up prices, and we want to get rid of them. And I explain in free lunch how that works. Now, I'm sure a lot of you find this very jarring. It is not what you expect to hear. It is not our national myth. In fact, the other day I was driving on the highway and I was listening to Fox Radio and then I switched to NPR and I listened to two different correspondents give their commentary in the American economy and it was the exact same narrative. Well, the narrative just has little to do with the reality of our system. You are being forced, and I show from government records, that you are being forced to pay taxes to go to, not to government, but to the wealthiest people in America. That the rise of urban gangs in this country, we've always had gangs, but not like we do now, is intimately connected with these subsidies, particularly one that goes to Tyco and to the owners of commercial sports teams. That we would be wealthier and better off if we had competitive markets. And finally, I want to leave you with this point. Politicians are more likely than the average American to say that they are believers. You know, you open your mail at election time, and there's always pictures of the candidates with their spouses and children on the steps of the mosque or the synagogue or the church because they want you to know they're believers. Taking from those with less to give to those with more, taking from the poor to give to the rich, is denounced throughout the religious texts of this country as evil. Not a bad thing, not a questionable thing, as evil. There are so many uh, 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 places. When I was writing Free Lunch, one of the problems I had was which ones to pick to cite as examples. And yet our politicians who profess their belief in the Bible are enacting policies that directly contradict the beliefs in the Bible. We can address this. We can solve this. We created this country on the theory that we can govern ourselves. We got rid of slavery. Women somehow talked men into giving them the right to vote. We have child labor laws. We've done lots of things. We can change this system. It won't be easy. People will have to decide that they care about changing it. But if we don't care about it, I can tell you what's going to happen in the future. Your economics will get worse, and the economics of those who benefit, not from the market, but from getting government to put its thumb on the scale, theirs will get better. Thank you. David K. Johnston is author of Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. The former New York Times writer and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist spoke earlier this year at the Commonwealth Club of California. You're hearing him on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. After his speech, David K. Johnston took questions from the audience in San Francisco and from moderator Bob Saldick. Are there any subsidies made that really... Uh, represent money which ends up in the hands of illegal aliens in lieu of foreign aid. Is that another form of foreign aid? I I, I mean, the answer to that is I don't know. That's fair. 
Um, what about foreign companies doing business in the U.S.? Do they negotiate subsidies also? Well, what the data show is that foreign-owned companies in the United States pay lower effective tax rates than American companies, number one. Number two, I show in the book that, well, it's been argued for a long time that in a global economy, and I'm not against a global economy, but I want people to be aware of what the rules are doing in the short run, um, these companies have been outsourcing jobs. They've actually been destroying jobs in the U.S. and moving them offshore, and I show the numbers on companies they bought, how many jobs they had when they bought them, how many jobs they have now, how many additional jobs or fewer jobs that they have, and it's a net outflow. And this should not be surprising because under the rules that Congress has set, even though Congress hasn't set it this way, it's very clear that the signal given to uh, CEOs of multinational companies is get your assets out of the United States, get your intellectual property out of the United States, get your employees out of the United States. And there's a chapter in the beginning of the book where I show that we are so eager to do this that we have actually endangered our national security. And uh, uh, we have allowed the Chinese military to buy up and remove from this country a technology that is absolutely essential if we were ever to get into a protracted war with the Chinese uh, or any other country. It is gone from the U.S., and you as a taxpayer paid to develop this technology. Would you please explain more about your comment linking rising numbers of gangs with, supply, with subsidies to sports groups and Tyco and others? Yep. Um, in the early 1980s, I spent an enormous amount of time on the streets of Los Angeles. I covered the administration of the Los Angeles Police Department back then, and I'm the guy who changed their reputation from Sergeant Joe Friday, Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, the most honest, efficient, effective police department in the world, to what we all know it is today, a police department that operates under the aegis of the federal government that actually had gang members in uniform. And... Uh, I wrote the first major story in this country deconstructing a drive-by gang shooting, a term that didn't exist uh, when I was uh, a kid or a very young man. Uh, it turns out that uh, across America, local police departments spend 500, I'm sorry, spend $2 billion a year responding to burglar alarms. Now, at first blush, most of us would think, well, the police ought to respond to burglar alarms. That's a routine thing for the police to do. Well, 99% of burglar alarms are false, according to the industry's own data. Only one house in five has burglar alarms, and they're not all in wealthy areas. Poor areas have high concentrations of burglar alarms. So 80% of homeowners are being taxed to provide a benefit to 20% of homeowners that 99% of the time is a waste of time. Federal uh, research shows the average burglary takes five minutes, Police response times in this country have been degrading and getting worse, and I cite the numbers in the book, but typically the police arrive more than a half an hour after the alarm goes off. So that even if there is a burglary, they don't catch anybody. Studies done by police departments all across the country show that it's about 50 bucks, and this is 19, oh, sorry, year 2000, 2001, 2 data, about 50 bucks to check out a false burglar alarm. One quarter of the burglar alarms in this country trace back to Tyco. So you're spending as taxpayers $500 million a year for what amounts to free labor to Tyco. Tyco collects an, a monthly fee to monitor the burglar alarm. According to the burglar alarm industry's own statistics, the profit margin on monitoring burglar alarms is 77%. 77%. I don't know any business in America that makes half that much. 77%. And then the cost of responding to those alarms is met by the local taxpayers who send the cops. So Tyco gets $500 million a year of free labor. Well, in the city of Los Angeles in particular, but in many other cities, we have cut and cut and cut after-school programs because there isn't any money to do it. And in many cities now, one out of every eight calls for service to the police is to respond to false burglar alarms. As we've cut these programs, after-school programs, we've gotten much more violent and much larger youth gangs. And I would suggest that the idea that idle hands of the devil's workshop is not some radical new notion. Uh, if we eliminated this system and either required people who have burglar arms to pay the full costs or the companies to pay it, uh, 
then we could reduce the size of police departments and we could use that money for after school and uh, summer youth programs of the kind that were all over the place when I was a kid and that kept kids out of trouble and did not help gangs. All right, what are you suggesting here, that the towns should have their own alarm system that they run? Well, you certainly could have city-run alarm systems, but no, I think the costs should not be borne by the taxpayers of checking out these burglar alarms since 99% of them are false and only one house in five has them. It's not an effective use of taxpayer resources, and we're starving our public parks and recreation programs for money to feed this ineffective inefficient waste of resources and the response we've gotten from kids who don't have anywhere to go uh, is they get into gangs and we get violence. We don't need to have that. Do you have a burglar alarm? I do not. I have in the past. I do not now. Okay. Uh, from From the audience, American debt has risen but so has consumerism. Bigger houses, bigger cars, vacation home, et cetera, et cetera. Are taxes really the problem, or is a lot of this bad judgment by our citizens? Well, all things are dynamic and complicated. I mean, I wish the world was just simple. Um, uh, One of the things I show in free lunch is that for every dollar of equity Americans added to their homes from 1980 to 2006, they took on $2 of debt. This is not a prescription for getting wealthier. This is a prescription for being on the hamster wheel until you drop debt Um, There is no question that American policies, however, have encouraged this. Lots of people buy a home because they believe they get a tax benefit. Seventy percent of Americans own their home. Only half, less than half of those Americans, only 30 percent, actually get a federal government tax benefit because if you file a standard deduction tax return, that's what 70 percent of Americans do. You don't get a deduction for mortgage interest or for the property taxes you pay. And some of the people who file a long form and itemize their deductions have their uh, property tax bill taken away from them as a deduction by the alternative minimum tax. The National Association of Realtors, when I wrote about this a few years ago, estimated that one-third of the value of homes, uh, particularly those over a quarter million dollars, was the subsidy that people were buying the tax break. So government policy is certainly encouraging people to take on debt and to behave the way that they are. You assert that the uh, rich people pay a smaller percentage in taxes than poor people do. Well, that's what the government data show, and let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, uh, Let me give you a state-level example first, Alabama. The bottom fifth of families in Alabama have an average income of $13,000 or less, and they pay the state of Alabama and local governments 11 cents out of every dollar of their income. The richest 1% of Alabama families make over $229,000 a year. They pay on average 4 cents. So the rich pay 4 cents and the poor pay 11. On the federal level, we have a system that is somewhat progressive. The bottom half of Americans, particularly those who are married and have children, don't pay income taxes, and in some cases get money back to something called the Earned Income Tax Credit. On the other hand, if you look just at the income tax system, once your income gets over $10 million a year, the share of your income that you pay in federal income taxes starts to fall. And let me digress and fill this out a little bit more, because I'm going to tell you something I think will shock most people. Most people think of George Bush going down in history as the biggest tax-cutting president of all. Well, Bill Clinton signed a law that gave the super-richest people in America a tax cut 60% bigger than all the Bush tax cuts combined. That's a story that I broke, and the numbers have been in the New York Times, and the White House, the current White House, says that they are reasonable numbers. Uh, When Bill Clinton took office, the top 1,000 people in America, men, women, and children, were paying... 30 cents out of each dollar of their income in federal income taxes. When he left, they were paying 22 because of a tax cut law he signed in 1997. That's an 8-cent cut. So if you're making $100 million a year, and this top group makes more than that, you're saving $8 million. All the Bush tax cuts combined lowered that to 17 cents. That's only a nickel, another $5 million. Uh, Warren Buffett confirmed what I reported in the New York Times and in my books, 
when he asked his top staff to just write down the percentage of their income they paid to the federal government in taxes of all kinds. On his $46 million income, he said he paid 17%. His top staff people, who made a tiny fraction of that, paid 32, 33, 34%. That is essentially double what he was paying. Um, When you look at all federal taxes, not just income taxes, because that's very misleading to just look at income taxes. The top 1% of Americans, that's everybody who makes over about $330,000, but it includes people who make a billion dollars a year. It's not a cohesive group, but the top 1% make about 22% of the income, and they pay about 37, they may be up to 38% now of the federal income taxes. But when you look at their total federal tax burden, they only pay about 25% of the taxes, not much more than their share of national income. Uh, So we have created a system in which the Bush White House has acknowledged, in response to my reporting, is progressive. They say it's more progressive because the top 40% pay a larger share of federal taxes today than they did when President Bush took office. That's true. But the top tenth of 1%, that group, the top 300,000 people in America, they pay a smaller share than they used to pay. So if you're on the – think of income as a ladder with 100 steps – If you're on the rungs from 60 to 99.9, your share of the federal tax burden is higher. But if you're in that very top group, yours is smaller. Progressivity goes up, and then it falls off. That's the group President Bush referred to as the haves and the have-mores, and they're the ones who are benefiting from this system. So if you're in the 90th percent uh, uh, level of of Americans in income, you're paying a larger share of taxes And those people way above you, people who make over $1.5 million a year, they're paying a smaller share. So what would happen then if if the very rich people paid the same percentage as everybody else? How much would would that impact the federal deficit? Well, assuming that we don't keep spending like drunken sailors. Uh, I mean, the federal government's spending, what's called non-discretionary, non-defense spending, has grown under the Bush administration more or more equal to the rate at which it grew under the Johnson administration. Um, So long as Congress keeps spending money it doesn't have, we will keep going further and further into debt. Since 1969, we have only had balanced federal budgets in two years, the last two years of the Clinton administration. Had we not cut federal income taxes, we might have had less realization of income by people at the very top, but we wouldn't have deficits that are as large either. We have several. If I, Bob, let me, let me just have okay. one little point. Uh, if I said this before, it's worth repeating. Federal debt is so great now that all of the income taxes you pay for the first four months of the year just go to pay interest on the national debt. If we had gotten the promise Mr. Reagan gave us he was going to balance budgets and Congress, the Democrats controlled Congress most of this time, hadn't spent money they didn't have, imagine we could cut your taxes by a third and all things, would be, all things being equal uh, we wouldn't, because we wouldn't have that national debt. Think about that. Every dollar that comes out of your paycheck, January, February, March, and April, just to pay interest on the national debt. You're listening to David K. Johnston. He spoke this spring at the Commonwealth Club of California. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. Questioner says, there are more poor people than rich people. Why do people in the majority vote against their self-interest? Where's the outrage? And I guess a related question here is, are there any political leaders who are uh, tuning into your arguments? Well, there certainly are more people who are poor and middle class than are very wealthy. Um, And there have been others who have written books like Thomas Frank, What's the Matter with Kansas, who have tried to explore this phenomena. We know that the better off you are, the more likely you are to vote. Um, The better off you are, the more likely you are to be able to get access to your elected political officials. Uh, Here's a little experiment for you. Call up your member of Congress and say, I'd like 15 minutes with my congressman at his or her convenience any time in the next six months. Just give me an appointment. I'll come down. See if you can get the meeting. 
I assure you, if you were a big donor, you'd get the meeting. But see if you can get the meeting. I've been asking this question for more than 10 years. I've had people call me and tell me that they were cross-examined, they were lectured about when they said what they wanted to talk about, about the right way to think, the American way to think. But I have yet to have anybody call me and tell me they got their 15 minutes with their member of Congress, who wasn't a campaign donor. Um, uh, the other big issue, the reason I think that we don't have any sense of outrage is the news media does a lousy job of reporting on this stuff. We have a national narrative, and the national myth from which we are operating is getting more and more estranged from the reality of what's in the official government record. Reporters, by and large, do a superb job of telling you what was said or happened in the open yesterday. The president said this in a speech. The city council voted on, on the following after a debate. An airplane fell out of the sky. You know, somewhere a postman bit a dog. Because there's always a little humor in the news. The score of the baseball game and how the game went down. Those are all accurately reported. But the stuff that I'm writing about, this is not easy to find. I, I spend hours a day reading the most boring government material and documents, statistical tables, court decisions, dragging this stuff out of the public record uh, and connecting the dots. So a lot of people do not know about it. You mentioned George W. Bush a while ago, and the questioner says, can you explain again how George W. Bush reaped a fortune from his investment in the Texas Rangers baseball team? Yeah, one of the things I ask people around the country is, how do you think George Bush made his money? And some people go, uh, he inherited it, or oil. Uh, he was an oil, gas tel ta uh, shelter, oil and gas tax shelter salesman, a job at which he was miserably unsuccessful. Um, he actually owes his fortune, almost all of it, to a tax increase that was funneled into his pocket. And this is one of the stories I tell in Free Lunch. Uh, President Bush put together a group of investors who bought a money-losing baseball team, the Texas Rangers, from a guy named Eddie Childs, who at the age of 89 could figure out that he didn't have much more time and he ought to unload his little hobby. They then went and arranged to have a special election held on an odd date in January. Almost nobody turned out to vote, but they had a, a uh, campaign to turn out voters, and they voted to increase the sales tax in Arlington, Texas, by a half cent. This money was then used to, uh, condemn, to, to uh, build a new baseball stadium on land that instead of being bought in the open market, in the competitive market, was acquired through eminent domain, through the coercive power of government to force people off their land. One family fought back, and a jury awarded them six times the highest offer the city had given them, which tells you how much eminent domain tends to understate real values. Many, in, the, in short, the owners of that land were cheated out of the real value of it. The total value of the subsidy, according to the public record and Ray Hutchison, who is the leading authority on municipal finance in Texas, who is the husband of Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, Republican of Texas, and is a friend of George Bush and was the lawyer on the deal, was $202 million. The increase in the price of the team when they was sold nine years after President Bush and his partners acquired it was $164 million. So 100% of that increase, which accounts for at least two-thirds of President Bush's fortune, came from the taxpayers. And he did not even successfully capture the entire subsidy. The market did not add a cent to the value of that team. Now, the president has always said this was a win-win for everybody. Well, the vast majority of people in Arlington, Texas, don't go to ballgames. And so little children who were out uh, cutting lawns and uh, uh, pulling weeds for somebody and babysitting, when they went to buy things, paid higher taxes. And if they didn't go to a ball game, then the benefit went to President Bush at their expense. And I think it's one of the great ironies of our, of our age. We have a question, a historical question from the audience. How do the subsidies we have today compare historically? Has something in the system changed to increase them, or was... Lincoln giving subsidies also when he was around? That's a wonderful question. Um, and in my books, I go back as far as the, the ancient uh, Egyptians and the Greeks to show the precedence for our tax system. Um, we've always had subsidies of some kind in this country. The Boston Tea Party was not, as is widely taught in America, a protest against high taxes. It was a protest against a tax favor for the politically connected friends of King George that would have created a monopoly in the long run. 
Um, we have gone through periods of big subsidies in this country. In the late 1800s, when the railroad industry came, we had enormous public subsidies. If you go look up the official engineering records for which money was paid for building the Intercontinental Railroad, uh, you will discover that only nine miles outside of Sacramento, the High Sierra began because they were paying, as I recall, $8,000 a mile for flatland and $64,000 a mile for railroads up in the high country. Uh, most of the states adopted constitutions in the late 1800s and the early 1900s that prohibited gifts to corporations. New York has a flat prohibition against this. And I quote a lawyer uh, uh, reflecting on how much in subsidies are being given to corporations in New York as saying that, yeah, that's such a, a tough prohibition that it undoubtedly took some lawyer on Wall Street at least 30 seconds to find a way around it. Uh, we did not have big subsidies of the kind we do today for many of the industries I write about until after the 1980s, when we were told we would get less government. Uh, here in San Francisco, people may recall there was a scandal over Candlestick Park and people getting rich off the land deals there. But the actual subsidy to the Giants to come here was pretty modest compared to what goes on today in commercial sports. Uh, and I show in the book that it is since 1980 that this enormous increase in subsidies has been taking place mostly under the guise of, quote, deregulation, which simply means new rules that favor the people who are in that industry in most cases, and secondly, job creation, that if we create this subsidy, we'll create jobs, and in most cases, what I show is you're not creating jobs, you're just concentrating them at a specific location. We have been, by and large, for the last 28 years in this country, rejecting competitive markets in favor of corporate socialism. In your book, you say that taxes are at the core of our democracy. What, what do you mean by that? Well, that's in the, the first book, Perfectly Legal, but that's exactly oh. what I say. 2,500 years ago, ancient Athens... If you were living 2,500 years ago, this was a paradise on earth. I mean, these are people who had civilization. They had theater. They had arts. And they also had an absolute flat tax. Everybody in Athens paid the same tax. And if you didn't pay the tax, they marched you out to the uh, outer edge of the city and sent you away, which was basically a death sentence. Well, for 80% of the people in Athens, paying this tax was their greatest burden. It was an awful burden for them to meet, and it caused terrible social problems. And so for a couple of centuries, they chewed on this problem, and then they came up with a moral insight. That there is no economic gain without civilization. Think about that for a minute. If we lived in a state of anarchy, if we lived in the jungle, you can't have a house or a business. Someone can come and just take it away from you. Civilization makes all of this wealth around us possible. And so the moral theory they came up with was, since you can only become wealthy by living in a civilized state, the greater the economic gain you've achieved from living in that civilized society, the greater your duty to maintain that society with your taxes. And when they invented this, taxation based on ability to pay, they invented democracy. Every classic worldly philosopher has been in favor of what we now call progressive taxation. The more you have, the greater the share of your income or wealth or whatever we measure that you pay in taxes. Adam Smith wrote in favor of this. A lot of people will tell you it's a Karl Marxian communist idea. Adam Smith wrote about this. Karl Marx hadn't even become a gleam in his father's eye. David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, James Mill, John Locke, a man who hated taxes. Even he was in favor of progressive taxation. President Bush says he's in favor of progressive taxation. And so this idea is intimately connected with democracy. Taxation and democracy go hand in hand. And societies that are totalitarian, dictatorial, feudal, tend to have tax systems like what we're moving towards, that take from the many to give to the few the reverse of the Athenian principle. Forbes magazine interviewed you recently, and they are the magazine of the rich, I think it's fair to say. And they said, how would you change the tax system? And you said, I don't know. So if you don't know, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Well, 
the reason I said that I don't know is, is twofold. Uh, when they interviewed me for that, I was a reporter at the New York Times, and I thought it was totally untenable for me to have a position in favor of any particular tax system, and I still do, given the work that I do. The Constitution says Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, and we can have all kinds of different tax systems, including the silly example I gave you earlier uh, in this talk. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm in the diagnosis business. I'm not in the solutions business. I'm in the business of digging through the government record and telling you what the official records tell us about what's happening in our society. He, much smarter people than I have lots of very good proposals for how to address a tax system so that we have a tax system that flows from the economic order and that benefits our society instead of throwing sand in the gears of commerce. Unfortunately, we've come to the point in our program where there's time for only one last question. And it's my question. I notice, looking you up on the web, that there's a website devoted to challenging your work. It's called David K. Johnston Watch. And it's challenging some of the things you say. This must be very flattering for you. Any closing comments on this? Well, the person who's created that is unknown. Uh, they're not willing to sign their name to their work. I sign everything that I do. I would invite you to go read the section about uh, that asserts that I say I'm a Ph.D. economist and then quotes me as saying, I don't have a college degree. I don't. Uh, and that, but I did study economics for two quarters, not the one the book mentions, at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Economics. Um, but it is a good example of what isn't journalism, but is an effort to obfuscate. There are certainly lots of people who can and will and should criticize my work, and I'm one of those rare journalists who encourages critics to come to me because I've found over time listening to people who find flaws in my work has made it much better. So, thank you. David K. Johnston is author of Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. He spoke April 14th at the Commonwealth Club of California. If you missed part of this hour's speech by David K. Johnston, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those of previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and listen to speakers such as CNN correspondent Christiane Amanpour, writer and surgeon Atul Gawande, and journalist Anthony Lewis on the history of the First Amendment. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson, with associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph, and the technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.